Hello and welcome to the last Romania Act of 2018. As the government mobilises 3,500 troops at the ports, spends £2 billion to prepare for an eventuality that did not appear on a ballot paper, and advises that nobody should book a holiday in Europe next year, and as Health Minister Matt Hancock becomes Britain's biggest fridge magnate, we're finishing the year exactly where we started, in a state of ruinous confusion. I'm Dorian Linsky. I'm eagerly awaiting our government resilience pamphlet to ensure the smooth delivery of podcasts in 2019. With me today, I've got Ingrid Oliver, actor, comedian and armchair brexologist. Hello, Ingrid. How are you? Uh, tired and emotional. Um, that's not a euphemism. Uh, let's put it this way. This morning, I almost bought a packet of cigarettes and I've given up smoking. So I'm not in a good way, yeah. Are you getting the no deal fear? Um, massively, actually. I, this morning, woke up and something has shifted in me. I went from being angry... Uh, that Theresa May has, has left no deal on the table, like a lot of people. I tweeted about it this morning. Um, and then I thought about it, and actually, that is what is going to happen. That is what's going to happen. Even if, the, the, if, if we leave, if we cannot unite behind another alternative. So I am very scared this morning because I've slightly lost hope. And I'm glad that we have the guests on the programme that we have today because I'm hoping they're going to restore my hope. Um, because there's nothing like the threat of £2 billion being spent on No Deal to really focus the mind, which is presumably what she wants. Well, well last week's guest, James O'Brien, said it was as if Britain had declared war on itself. Um, and some people seem to be quite up for that. Uh, former SAS nobber Anthony Middleton on Twitter tried to make the hashtag Suffer Together happen. Britain's a very odd country, isn't it? <laughs> it is an odd country, but that's an interesting... Suffer Together is an interesting choice of words because the together is key. In that, I know that sounds ludicrous, but at this point, what I want is for this country to stop warring with with itself. And so, whatever we have to do to make to to to, to unite it, us, that's what I want. Well, suffering apparently is and the, suffering. Is the I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, more on suffering Merry later. Christmas, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Also with us is Ros Taylor of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, the gold, frankincense and myrrh of the digital disinformation age. Hi, Ros. Welcome back. Hello. Uh, did you see the trailer for the HBO Brexit movie, cunningly titled Brexit, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as uh, Dominic Cummings? Yes, I did. And Carol Cadrillard has said, fuck off HBO. Imagine if we did this for Trump right now. You are literally interfering in our criminal justice system, uh, which is a, a strong take. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of the idea of making uh, a movie about the Leave campaign at this point in time? I think it's absolutely fine. I have absolutely no problem with it. I think um, the, uh, th th that in a ten years' time, this will all be over, please God. Will it though? But there will not be the interest that there is now. So there is a strong argument for doing it now. And in any case, you know, it's, it's an artistic endeavour, it's a film, it's OK to make a film about Brexit. We can't be all precious about it and say, oh, oh but, but people like Benedict Cumberbatch and people like Dominic Cummings, maybe they'll have some sympathy for the main characters. Oh, for God's sake, come on, we need to pull ourselves together. This is ridiculous. We, we, it is fine to make a film about the Brexit campaign. I have no problem whatsoever. It's weird, though, isn't it? Because, like, when, say, Robin Williams played a villain in Insomnia... People didn't go, but people like Robin Williams. Mm. What if they like the, whatever he was in that, child killer or something? <laughs> and it's like, but there's a thing called acting. <laughs> and yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch, I'm sure, yeah. it is, you know, look at the look of it. It's not him at his best. He seems to, he's got, he's got a, a sort of bald wig thing going on. Mm. It's like James Graham is a very subtle writer. He is. In terms yeah. of kind of, and even in the trailer, it doesn't look like it's going to be a, a whitewash. 
It's it's pure paranoia, I'm afraid, and I'm pretty disappointed that Carol Cadwallader took that view. Uh, took that view. Well, Carol Cadwallader is not on the show today, but. This is the second of our Christmas Guest Clash editions where we bring back a couple of our most popular guests from the year. Femi Oluwole is the chief spokesperson for Our Future, Our Choice, the youth anti-Brexit campaign. He spent the year buttonholing people about Brexit in Sunderland, Sheffield and all across this sceptre dial. He was great on the show earlier this year and he's a Romaniac hero. Uh, and he has a French film crew in the studio today, which is, I think, perhaps, you know, it's fronting it a little bit. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Just showing off. Hi. Um, have your outside broadcasts uh, cheered you up at all, sort of going out and, and having these conversations? Well, I mean, I spend most of my time on Twitter, so the version of Brexit voters that I get isn't the best version of them. I get the angry, the extreme versions, whereas when you actually go out and speak to people in those areas that voted for Brexit, you find that they're a hell of a lot more reasonable than the versions you get on Twitter. You get, I mean, when you, when you tell someone, all right, why did you want Brexit? They say, want sovereignty, want, want control. And then you say, all right, well, look at this deal. What do you think of the deal? It's crap. It means we have less control. All right, well, let's look at the control that we currently have as an EU member, or we have three times the voting weight of the average EU country. Don't you prefer that? Yes. And they're much more reasonable than the versions you get on, on on Twitter and on Question Time that scream obscenities about how we need to take back control of Ireland or just invade the rest of Europe. <laughs> and, and do people... Um, do you get the few people are understanding uh, No Deal? Because I see a lot of people on Twitter at the moment going, yeah, let's just go for it without really sort of considering the sorry the consequences yeah i mean this because we have three options at this point a remaining in the eu a deal that everyone hates and no deal um, people think, well, they, they hate the deal, so surely uh, no deal is the only alternative. But no deal is not an alternative. No deal means that 1.4 million British people who live in countries across Europe, whose rights to live there are based on the fact that they are EU citizens as well as British citizens. If you remove that citizenship, they lose the right to live in their own homes and have to apply to individual national authorities just to keep their lives together. Now, when, I, when you speak to reasonable Brexit voters and you say, all right, did you, do, did you vote Brexit to do that to 1.4 million British people they say no mm. but the instinct of well our only option is no deal we have to work really really hard to really explain step by step what no deal means um and I, there was a you had a little bit of pushback recently when you were on the um sort of cover that tommy robinson mm. event and spoke to i can't remember what his yeah, Danny Tomo, yeah. um and i think and some people just go well why why would you give this person any attention and obviously your whole uh, ethos is kind of reaching out and having these conversations. Mm. Did you, how do you, where do you sort of draw the line there? Did you understand why some people were like, we shouldn't be talking to this person at all? Because the reason I went there was, well, firstly, I thought, all right, I need to go there and see if I can get anything that I can use. Secondly, the reason why I published it was because. What the far right's doing right now is they've tapped into the frustration held within many of the working class across the country um, that the system isn't working for them. And they claim to be the champions of the working class. They think that the, leaving the EU will somehow make things better for them. And so by going in there and getting that, uh, Tommy Robinson's right-hand man to admit that his Brexit plan will make us poorer... I therefore expose that the, that the far right is not for the working class, that they will make them poorer, and that they are actually the enemy of everything they claim to be about. And I managed to embarrass them at the same time because they thought that I was there as one of their friends. So I managed to embarrass the, um, the far right 
and point out that they're hurting the working class. And I think that was a success. You're not having a Christmas pint with him then? Uh, no. You've blown it. <laughs> well, it was, it was actually hilarious. He took a picture with me. He asked for a selfie because he spotted me in the crowd and he wanted to show on his, on his Facebook how tolerant and accepting and how people of all races um, are part of this movement. And then his own followers on, on, on Facebook were commenting like, uh, that's, that's Femi. He's a massive Remainer. He's just mugged you off, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Also back on the show is another great guest from earlier in the year, Seb Dance, Labour MEP for London, Deputy Leader of the Labour Group in Strasbourg and Brussels. Hi, Seb. How Hello. are you? I'm, I'm fine, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic than, than Ingrid, I have to say, uh, about things. Um, and, and I think that the... I think the prospect of no deal is not as serious as, as, as we think. I think that what the government is doing is a massive ruse. But here's the crucial thing, of course, is that there are sufficient Tory MPs who would break the whip. Uh, they would split the party if they went for no deal. And I'm very, very confident that any government that took that through would, would lose the confidence of Parliament very quickly. But, of course, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't now billions and billions and billions of public money and private money in companies now having to be spent on contingency plans. I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a realistic... Uh, uh, a, a plan that the government has but nonetheless that money is now being spent and it's a disgrace it's an absolute disgrace it's a complete waste um, we will have more on disgrace later suffering and disgrace um, now there are Such European <laughs> again Merry Christmas <laughs> <laughs> there are European elections uh, in May next year um, are there you know for you and your fellow MEPs are there any sort of contingency plans in case Article 50 is extended or revoked and you need to fight them after all uh, I mean, we're always ready to fight an election. Uh, as uh, uh, politicians and political animals, elections are our thing, so we're, we're, we're always ready. Um, in terms of the preparation from the other side, I think uh, it's been very, been, certainly been made very clear to me that uh, an extension for the purposes of settling this question, whether that be a referendum or some other democratic process or whatever is necessary, that would be allowed. But I have to say that the hard and fast deadline is the first of July, uh, and that's been made very, very clear. However, um, uh, there are two things going on here. Firstly, would it be a problem to have uh, European elections uh, if we were still in the European Union at that point? Personally, I don't think it would be. And the second aspect here, of course, is that we are still a departing member for the purposes of Article 50, whether it be extended or not. Uh, and therefore, there is an argument to say we wouldn't need uh, European elections up until the point of that extension, i.e. the 30th of June being the, the, the latest date. There might then have to be a subsequent election in order to make up the numbers if, if the UK decides to rescind uh, its, its earlier decision. It's messy, it's complicated, but ultimately the key message here is if the politics gets into the right place, we can't let the logistics defeat it. Mm. And, of course, Nadine Doris was furious that if we leave the EU, they won't let us have That's any MEPs. <laughs> How dare <laughs> they? What? <laughs> yes, the, uh, the ever-wonderful Nadine Doris. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Nadine. <laughs> <laughs> She's very detail-oriented, oh, yes. isn't she? Yeah. Later in the show, Seb and Femi are going to be telling us their high points and low points of the year and giving us a ray of hope or two for 2019. So hang on in there, Ingrid. We've got one last Ask Romaniacs for the year with the panel answering your questions. And inevitably, we'll have a look at the Brexit news as it stands on uh, 20 past three, roughly, on Wednesday. All that after a quick reminder from Ingrid. "'Twas a night before Christmas and all through the House, the House of Commons, that is. Not a creature was stirring, not even the leader of Her Majesty's opposition. <laughs> so no change there, then. Didn't need saying. Uh, take your mind off our collapsing political system and give yourself a Christmas present that keeps on giving by supporting Romaniacs on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. 
Over a thousand Patreon backers have helped us cover our costs, record more shows and generally fight the good fight this year and we are hugely grateful to them. If you sign up to support us, you can get those coveted Romaniacs mugs and t-shirts, ideal for identifying fellow Romainers and winding up Brexity relatives, plus <laughs> discounts on live tickets, a weekly column from the panellists and every episode of the show a day early. And it's much better than a gym membership. We're confident that this one will run and run and run and run and run. Uh, say no to Gammon on Christmas Day. <laughs> Back Romaniacs on Patreon. Go to our Facebook page or search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Thanks, Ingrid. And on the merch front, we should point out uh, that Seb is wearing an excellent Whee. All I Want for Christmas is EU. It's From Stowe Shirts, it's little amazing. plug there. Yeah. Stowe Shirts. S-T-O-W. Uh, Christmas treat for all. Uh, now let's climb up on Father Brexmas's lap and see what he's got for us in his sack of horror. Oh, please. First up. <laughs> oh, my God. First up, no deal is looming. To general amazement, the government met on Tuesday to discuss £2 billion worth, which they just had plucked from the money tree, including troops at the borders, extra staff at HMRC, and provision for hard impact on airlines, ferries, lorries, and medicine. Instructions are to be issued to six million businesses to begin their preparations, and Health Minister Matt Hancock told Newsnight in a bancy way that he is now the world's <laughs> biggest purchaser of fridges in which to stockpile <laughs> medicines, although no deal would apparently also affect the supply of fridges because of regulations on fluorinated gases. Five major business organisations issued a statement saying they are watching in horror, and Amber Rudd told the Cabinet that no deal preparations were sensible, but just because you put a seatbelt on doesn't mean you should crash the car. To which I'm sure Theresa May said, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> From no deal to no confidence, Jeremy Corbyn first demanded a vote of no confidence in Theresa May, but not the government, because she wouldn't lay her deal before the House. Then he pulled a no confidence motion. I got very lost during all this. Claimed <laughs> Labour had forced the government to put the deal to a, no, to, to a vote on the week of January 14th, then promised a real no confidence vote after May loses the vote on the deal, which would potentially mean a general election couldn't take place any earlier than two weeks before March the 29th. Seb, mm. we'll start on the uh, on the issue of No Deal. Mm. Um, has there been a kind of boiling the frog effect with mm -hmm. the British the British public that that they sort of become acclimatised because people don't seem quite as horrified as one might think? Yeah, I mean, there's two aspects, I guess. The first is that a lot of people uh, think that No Deal means a status quo. It's a bit like you know a purchase. If you don't go through with the deal, it's fine. You just go back to the to, to where you were. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, and the second aspect, uh, I mean, you you expressed it brilliantly. I think the, the frog boiling uh, point uh, has occurred throughout this process. I mean, even actually the deal itself, if the deal were discussed back in late 2016, say, you can imagine what the Prime Minister would have said uh, about it and what the political discourse would have been. It would have been, oh my goodness, this is absolutely unbelievable. We can, in her words, do so much better than this. Well, of course, the same thing has happened with No Deal. I think uh, uh, it is a democratic outrage, and we should be far, far angrier than I think we are, uh, given that what was put to people in June 2016 is thousands of miles away from what a no deal would do. There is absolutely zero, zero, capital Z, zero, mandate for a no deal Brexit. Uh, and the idea that this is being discussed as some sort of, oh well, uh, we tried to get the deal, but never mind, we'll go through with this anyway, is a complete and utter disgrace. Uh, but yes, I think the frog boiling analogy is, is, is completely apt on this one. But, uh, 
I was going to say sorry, but mm. I, I know there's no mandate for no deal, mm. but that is what will happen. Sh- sure. So, so what do we? What, what's the alternative? What's it, the alternative? It, Help I, I me, mean, please. No, no, no. Of course. I, I mean, uh, this might be a crap analogy, so apologies if if, if it is. But uh, the light switch uh, analogy is the one I've lighted on, and please, if anyone can improve on this, please do. <laughs> uh, but you know, the default setting for a light switch is it's off, and everyone's sitting there. It's gradually getting dark outside. At some point, somebody will turn on the light because no one is going to sit there in the dark. Uh, and just because the default option is there, it doesn't mean it, it, you know, it, it, it's the option that's going to take place. Uh, and that's what I think we have in terms of our parliament. We do not have uh, a majority for just sitting there uh, with, with uh, months or even days to go uh, that wouldn't do something. Now, what that something looks like, I don't know. But ultimately, if you have a prime minister determined to do that, what we've heard, I think, from some backbench Tory MPs is very encouraging in the last few days. I can't see any way in which a Prime Minister committed to actually fulfilling no deal, and let's not forget that would be an active choice of the government because we can revoke un- uh, Article 50 unilaterally. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is any way that that government could continue to carry confidence in the House of Commons. Uh, it would be messy, but I mean, this process was always going to be messy right up until the very end because we have no constitutional checks. And if Brexit has done anything, it's shone a light on the fact that we have no constitutional checks, no proper mechanism by which we can check decisions of this magnitude. So I'm afraid this this car crash of, of some sort, political, economic, social, whatever, uh, is going to occur in some way. Uh, and it might just be that that involves uh, uh, some sort of political chaos right at the very end, but just because it's the default option doesn't mean I think it's the most likely. Uh, Roz, do you think that there is um, that this is largely uh, brinksmanship, you know, to sort of scare, Theresa May, to scare people into voting for her deal, in which case the implication of that is that £2 billion is going to be spent on freaking people out. Yeah. Okay, right. and it's seems immoral to me. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely immoral. It's at every level, it's immoral. I mean, one of the things that civil servants are probably going to be taken off to do Brexit is the social care paper. Now, you know, that sounds boring to most people, social care. Hugely important, actually. Hugely important because social care is in total crisis in this country and is massively underfunded. And to think that we are diverting civil servants' attention purely in order to... to to go through with this crazy, crazy brinkmanship, it just makes... Oh, God. It, 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 I'm sorry, I've had a bad week too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I cried I, this morning. We talked about this. Yeah, yeah been, and, I, and yeah. I nearly did because I just could not believe that it, someone could be so irresponsible as to make these to effectively make these threats, to frighten people, to tell people... Look, think about it. People are now frightened because they think they're not going to be able to get hold of the drugs that they need because pharmacies are going to run out. There are people who don't just need drugs, they are dependent on drugs. And to do that and to put the fear of God into them for the sake of this is a terrible thing to do. Mm -hmm. I'm actually quite hopeful um, because I, I, I believe that the politicians will save the country. Not because I have any faith in politicians actually having the national interest at heart, but because I have, I believe that politicians have their own self-interest at heart. They will not vote for a deal that angers both halves of the country. They will not vote for a deal that means that the Brexit voters who voted for more control end up with less control. They will not vote for a deal that annoys Remainers as well. And so once we get into a no-deal territory come end of January... They are not going to sit there and allow no deal to happen because that is a disaster for the reputation of both parties. If the, if the Conservative Party voted to have the referendum, well, introduced the referendum, led both sides of the referendum debate, which everyone knows was terrible, negotiated a deal that 
everyone hates and then sits back and lets no deal happen, their reputation is trashed and they are finished. I believe that out of pure self-preservation, they will actually prevent no deal from happening. And the only way they do that is a people's vote. Hmm. Well, what do you make of Labour's, I don't want to say strategy, activity... (laughs) Uh, at, at the moment, because I literally couldn't follow the kind of the the will they won't they no confidence v- vote yeah. thing. It seems to be obviously Corbyn uh, accuses Theresa May of running down the clock, but you know the clock is running down, mm. and it's just you know from from people your you know OFOC membership and, and people you speak to who uh, are Labour supporters, um, is there is there the, a kind of great faith that that there's just a lot of kind of you know fundamental chess going on behind the scenes and. Or, or is there real kind of anxiety because because no decision has been made? See, I mean, Labour is a tricky one. I mean, I'll let Seb answer this in a second, but I mean, 80% or so of the members and like 74% of votes in 2016 want a, a, a people's vote. Um, and they want, Brex- they want Brexit stopped. Um, the question is, will, la- will the leadership actually go ahead? Um, Right now, Labour is in a tricky position in terms of its leadership. It, it couldn't have done a no-confidence motion to trickle down an election because the Tories would have never gone for that. The mm. only thing, this is the only... Um, trying to get Theresa May removed as Prime Minister was literally the only thing they could do, at least to throw some sort of spanner in the ranks to try and get her out or at least make, move things along. So I get that, but... I mean, I've spoken to people at Labour conference, Labour Party conference, massive Corbynistas who... Um, we talked about this. Jeremy Corbyn has not come out in favour of people's vote, even though he knows that his party wants it. What do you say to that? He said, and they say, well, he'll, he'll come around eventually. He's got a plan. Don't trust us. He, he, he has a plan. And I said, all right, well, in theory, if he doesn't do absolutely everything to make sure that this bre- damaging Brexit doesn't happen, and it does specifically damage those areas of vote for Brexit, Labour heartlands in the northeast, if it does that, would Jeremy Corbyn be the person that you think he is? They say no, but we trust he's that person. And it's that situation we are, we're in right now. Um, Seb, at the, mm. at the risk of putting you on the spot, um, a recent opinion poll showed that May was considered more trustworthy in principle than Corbyn for the first time ever. Only 25% of respondents thought mm. he was decisive. Only 16% approved of his Brexit strategy. And Corbyn's brand is, is what you see is, is what you get. I mean, his, his, his success to date has been built mm. on the fact that he, is, he stands by his principles. He's, he's honest. He's not your typical politician. Um, is there any way that this that this current uh, approach, this current ambiguity, can be sustained without seriously hurting his image? Uh, uh, no, uh, and I think it already is. Um, and you know, I think the very simple thing here is the leadership has to listen to the membership. Uh, in fact, there are many members who listen to this podcast. Of course, there are many uh, members who voted for for Corbyn uh, in successive leadership contests who listen to this podcast. Uh, and, you know, I'd implore you, please write to Jeremy, mm. uh, because it's very, very important that we get the message across that the, the Labour Party membership is overwhelmingly uh, opposed to what's happening. Uh, and part of the problem is, you know, we have this position where we say we would negotiate a better deal. Maybe, maybe uh, you, you could improve, uh, certainly in terms of the tone uh, and, and, and the approach that was taken by the government, you know, 24 months ago. Um, but in December 2018, with the 29th of March 20, you know, 2019 deadline, it's just not possible. So we have to stop this our unicorn is better approach mm. because it is simply not realistic. And I think people, you know, people realise this and I think that is doing great harm to, uh, to our reputation. But, you know, we can turn it around in an instant. 
uh, in an absolute instant if we if we if we if we are decisive on this. And frankly, I think it's time that the Labour Party came out for another vote. I think you know it's it's the inevitable next step. But like you, I'm not really sure what happened in Westminster. I'm not a, 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 the greatest uh, understander of uh, Westminster parliamentary procedure. But um, for me, it seems obvious. You know, we have to we have to try and get rid of the government. We have to try for a general election. If that's not possible, then then yes, we have to come out for a vote. Which is technically what the conference policy was, mm. is that you try for a general election, and if you don't get that, mm. you go for a people's vote. Absolutely. So I, I that is know. our policy. But I would say, I, don't, don't to the party membership, don't let yourself be used. You got Corbyn into power. That was an extraordinary thing on anybody's terms to, uh, for, for, the, for, uh, for that to happen. And the party is, uh, leadership is now turning around and saying, oh, we don't care about your views on the people's vote. And that's not the deal you were sold. You were sold. You were told that the party members, that the members mattered, that they were going to be central to what was going on in Labour, and they're not. And you need to change that. And I, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer again. <laughs> Here I go. Um, the, the, the problem is for me. I do not believe for a second that Corbyn wants a second referendum. I do not believe he wants to stay in the EU. What I believe he wants, and in fact, John, John McDonnell said it at the Labour Party conference. And I think when people te- are honest, you have mm. to believe mm. what they're saying. Mm. He said, literally, the more chaos there is, the greater the opportunity for change. Mm. And I absolutely believe, I don't, think they want a, I don't think they want a general election that they win on a second, I, I don't mm. think they want a second referendum. I, th- I think he ideally doesn't want to win a referend- uh, an election where he has to implement then another form mm. of Brexit. Mm. I don't think he wants to ha- have mm. Brexit define his premiership mm. either. Mm. Because... It, he would be out of his depth, frankly. Yeah. Um, I think the genuinely the ideal situation for Labour at the moment, it seems to me at the top, the people at the top, is that we have a no-deal Brexit, uh, chaos is caused, and then Labour win the next general election and uh, with the promise of, of reform and social change. And I think anything, any, anyone thinking any different that Labour is somehow going to swoop in and save us is... is, is delu- at this late hour, sure, but is, I, is deluded. I think what's changed there, I mean, I, I, I think your premise may be correct... Um, incidentally, within the leadership's office, there is a division. Uh, and in my view, I think it's moving in the right direction. I think there are, there's now a critical mass of people arguing for another vote uh, against those who, who, who would at all costs try and keep us out of the European Union. But what's changed, I think, is that the previous assumption was that Labour needn't do anything in order for Brexit to happen. Um, and now, actually, because of the arithmetic in the House of Commons, that's changed. In order for some form of Brexit to happen, there needs to be a decision made by the Labour Party. And that has completely changed uh, what happens next. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, two things have happened. The need for that decision is focusing minds a lot, and it's focusing them, I think, albeit slowly, in the right direction. And the second thing is that the Labour Party, even those who are naturally you're a sceptic, and they have always been a minority in the Labour Party, they realise that to be seen to be responsible for the effects of a no-deal Brexit, which is what a Labour government would then end up with, it would be catastrophic for the kind of programme that we want to introduce. So I, 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 I don't agree with your end point of the analysis, even if, if I accept your, your initial premise. I mean, I was going to say thank you, Seb. Thank you. Yeah. I feel better. Thank you. I think See, everybody, I I think I everybody's grateful for Seb's yeah. response. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean... 
thinking that allowing Brexit to happen is going to help you get this Corbyn prime minister that you, you want if you're a Corbynista is simply wrong. If, if Brexit happens and Corbyn's left holding the bag and didn't, it hasn't been seen to at least have done absolutely everything in his power to prevent it, then A, um, the damage to the economy will be blamed on Corbyn, blamed on the very concept of socialism and everything that made Corbynistas cling to Corbyn for so long falls to the wayside. And there, do, there are people around Corbyn who need to get out of the way. Barry Gardner, for one, he said things like... Um, he said, uh, what did he say? He said, um, don't interrupt your enemy whilst he's making a mistake. He said, um, um, people thought would be handing the, the Tories a lifeline. That The logic behind that is, allow the country to fall apart so that Labour looks good by comparison. <laughs> that is not someone that you should be having mm. influencing there, the opposition. Are there perhaps any examples from history in which things fell apart and it did not benefit the left? <laughs> no, no, I don't know. Maybe, maybe listeners never could, happened. could tweet us there. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's coincidence week because just as the government needs some foreigner bashing red meat to appease the Europhobes and get them on side, the immigration white paper is finally ready for release. It contains what we thought it would, a £30,000 salary threshold on EU27 workers. Some cabinet members wanted a more realistic 21000 but hostile environment may insisted on thirty grand because what nurse, farm worker or care worker couldn't hit that target? And there would be no right of residence, just a five-year visa. Um, Javid seemed kind of a little ashamed to be announcing this and then sort of just went, well, obviously, you know, all this stuff is up for debate. So why... why I do expect it to change um, because it seems already deeply unpopular. Why present it now? Mm. Do you think it's part of the whole uh, Theresa May's deal strategy? Yes, I think it looks like we actually have a plan for something and God knows we're a bit lacking in those at the moment. Uh, It's saying after Brexit, this is what immigration is going to look like and that will, I think, she hopes, uh, reassure people. Um, Femi, immigration, we've noticed, has actually receded in importance among voters since the referendum and I I wonder whether that's simply because, you know, because they think that we're going to leave and freedom of movement is going to end and therefore they're not so concerned about it. Was that always, was there always a huge... uh, demographic difference there, that this was mainly a concern of the old, or or is there a significant number of kind of young people in Britain who are very anti-immigrant because they believe, you know, anti-freedom of movement because they believe it's affecting whether they can get a job or their wages. Yeah, I think, it, I think the poll was done recently by YouGov that said that roughly between 17 and 80% of young people would like the opportunity to be able to live and work in another in another EU country. So the idea that our generation is against freedom of movement is simply wrong. Our generation is more connected to the outside world than any generation before us. When we're, when we're tweeting, we could be tweeting against, tweeting against somebody that's in America. When we're playing FIFA, they could be in Japan. Pan, we are not a generation that sees borders the same way as our predecessors did. And so this I and the immigration narrative was just completely wrong in 2016. You had you had um, Nigel Farage saying there's nothing we can do to control immigration. They're they're coming here, living off benefits, clogging up the NHS. Whereas in fact, it took me actually calling up, calling him up, going on his radio show, and getting him to admit a that EU, EU members can control immigration and making sure that anyone comes here is either working or has enough money not to be a burden. And pointed out that they make up more doctors per person than Brits do. So our NHS desperately needs citizens from other EU countries, and the thirty thousand cap is absolutely shameful. Mm. The idea mm. that was that was floated at the time of the referendum was that free movement was this elitist um, thing that only rich people can benefit from. 
that's what Brexit literally does. Hmm. Um, they, they've, the plan is to do a Brexit deal that, ba- that where the immigration is based on full reciprocity, which means that if we make it so you have to be making at least £30,000 to come here, that means that you need to be making at least £30,000 to go there, which means that me personally, when I, when I one of my first jobs was working in a, in a hotel in France where I was doing everything from customer services to cleaning the toilets, guess what? I was not making £30,000. And, and so they've literally turned free movement, a right that we have by birthright, into an elitist system mm. that only the rich can access. Absolutely. And um, Tony Blair popped up again recently to suggest that if there was a, a second referendum, um, there should be a promise to reform freedom of movement. Now, Stephen Bush in the New Statesman made two excellent points, mm. is that the EU27 really like freedom mm. of movement and don't want to change it. And secondly, a sort of more ethical point, that a pro-EU campaign that isn't pro-freedom of movement is sort of illogical mm. and kind of worthless. Um you know, it'd be interesting to see how, how sort of loud, loud those voices are in terms of, well, how do we win more people over to, the, you know, the Remain cause in that in that referendum? Do we have to throw them a bone on this? What, what do you what do you think, Seb? Do you think that's just kind of uh, sort of selling out, I suppose, what we're meant to be stand for? I don't understand why he said it. I, I, I genuinely don't. I mean, you know, it, it, his is a useful contribution as a former prime minister with, with a lot of gravitas who, who understands far much uh, more than, than, than the most in terms of the geopolitical uh, consequences, so on and so forth. But you know, nobody I talk to in terms of my colleagues is remotely interested in putting up additional barriers to the movement of, of, of people and goods and services within the European Union. It's the whole point of being in a club is that you treat each other equally as members of a club. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Go back to my you know, excellent colleagues from accession countries like Bulgaria and Latvia and Romania and say, do you know what? I'm campaigning to remain, but only on the condition that your citizens have fewer rights than the rights that I'm arguing my citizens should have. I'm not going to do that. Mm. And, and I, you know, that, that for me is a fundamental principle of what it means to be in a club. I'm, frankly, I'm chomping at the bit for another referendum just so I can go out there and make the case for free movement because it's, it's a bloody wonderful thing, you know, that, that we have all benefited from that has made this country so phenomenally richer materially and socially uh, but here's the thing. If we end this thing, you know, British citizens, future generations, as well, of course, as current ones, are going to find themselves at a massive disadvantage mm-hmm. compared to our French, Spanish, Italian, uh, Lithuanian, Latvian, uh, 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 Swedish uh, you know, counterparts. All of whom will have different countries on their CVs. Exactly, exactly. And Femi made the point brilliantly that this is about restricting something that is available to everyone to just those with money. Because, of course, if you have money, you can throw money at any problem visas, working restrictions it's never going to be a problem if you have money and Ingrid I'm going to ask you to dive into the brain of Theresa May (laughs) for a moment so wet suit on Um, I think what often happens on the left when people talk about uh, immigration policy is that there seems to be often a sense of people that they don't really want to do it but they convince themselves that they have to do it they have to be stricter on immigrants Mm. because they need to appeal to you know the Leave voters in northern towns or yeah. whatever. Um, Theresa May, though, seems like pre- seems almost like the reverse, and seems pretty keen on this anyway. Yeah. And Brexit is just another way of kind of limiting immigration. Do you think this is a case of that? It's not just oh, she's being she's trying to appease the EIG and she's trying to move this way and that way. But this is just something that she likes. Immigration is one of those things. It sort of divides people into. I think there are people who are pro-immigration, people who are anti, and that's you can probably map over those people, those differences, whether they're 
more conservative or more liberal or more... Immigration seems to be like a fundamental issue uh, that divides people and where they come down, you can sort of... You can sort of I understand quite a lot, I think, about people by, by whether, how they come down on immigration, mm. and I, I have no, I have no way of, I have no way of delving into Theresa May's mind or, or, or inclination to, um, <laughs> but, but it seems from everything that we know about her and the way she's voted and, and, and her dealings with the EU in the past, immigration is, is obviously a big, is a big issue for her, and what I would say in, in, in response to what Seb was saying. Um, you know that the idea that this election, this referendum, was fought on on immigration. What I don't understand, what I've never understood, is that we were pre-referendum the fifth largest economy in the world. So immigration was not harming us financially. Mm. So if people perceived that immigration was taking away their jobs and they had lower incomes or, or you know not as not as uh, ready access to NHS services because of overcrowding, then that is patently not true in terms of our economy, the state of our economy, and actually that's a decision that governments have made, that the Conservative government had made, uh, and austerity measures that they had imposed. Mm-hmm. So so now that we are slipping in the rankings in the world of, of our, in terms of our economy, down to number six, I think, and, and falling, um, the idea that immigration is somehow to blame um, seems... Well, but like so much in, in the Brexit debate, it seems obvious that it's not. But it's how we reframe and engage in that argument. The fear about losing your job is the fear that um, it's depressing wages and that needs to be addressed and we need to speak to those people directly and not just say if you are against immigration and in any way you're automatically racist because that doesn't help the debate. You have to make points like the fact that the EU has actually reformed it free movement recently by introducing the Posted Workers Directive which means that you can't bring in people to undercut the, lo- the local wages mm-hmm. in this country. And and you've got also got to make the point that if we know, as we do know, that immigration is a net benefit to our economy, yeah. if that benefit is not being felt by the people at the bottom, that is a failure of government exactly. to ensure that, the, mm. that wealth is distributed evenly. Yeah. That cannot be blamed on the EU. Yeah, I mean, there's a theory, which you can read more about on LSE Brexit this week, actually, um, mm. of something called the parochial um, altruist. Now, that sounds a difficult phrase, but if you break it down, parochial altruist, basically it means that people care fundamentally most about their compatriots, about uh, people in their own country, and they have some sympathy for uh, other people from elsewhere, but their fundamental priority is given to those. Now, that, that means that you have to reassure people in effect constantly, that their compatriots are being treated properly, that they're not being undermined, that immigration is basically not harming their standard of living. And if you can convince them of that, and we haven't because of Mm. austerity and because of the the stress that's put on public services, if you can convince them of that, then you have a chance of getting people to be more receptive and positive about immigration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a a message you really have to push. Now, as it's the last show of the year, we're going to bring back one of our favourites from 2018, Ask Romaniacs, where you, the listener, get to ask the panel your questions. We asked our Patreon, Twitter and Facebook following for some ideas. Sorry, LinkedIn. And we did have a special request from Mark Meadowcroft for Naomi Smith to ask the questions in the voice of Arlene Foster. <laughs> Sadly, Naomi's not here. My attempt at an ulcer accent might well undermine the Good Friday <laughs> Let's start with Kat Dukas, who asks... Oh, yeah, this is a tricky one, right? When May's deal is voted down, and if the EU was prepared to renegotiate, is there a withdrawal package, a ultra-soft Brexit that Remainers should accept, rather than 
gambling on winning a people's vote? Well, quite simply, no, because if we end up with a deal that is a soft, soft Brexit, it means that we're bound by the rules of the EU in order to keep the economic advantages of being in the EU, but we lose our seat in Brussels and have no representation, which is less control. So that would be create such an unstable situation whereby Brexit voters who voted for more control end up with less, and the country tears itself apart. Nobody will be happy. Yeah. Well, I think we should accept a deal that matches the promises made by the Leave campaign, but they're undeliverable. Mm. But a ma- we would accept a magic deal. Yeah, we would accept, we would a, magic accept a magic deal. If, if, but of they, course, if they bring unicorns actually yeah. to life. life. Okay. Exactly. Ingrid, do you, do you, when you're scared, oh, do you just think, oh, maybe go for see, that? Well, no, I, I am at the point, of course I want to remain. That's what I want. That's the best deal. We know that. But if that's not an option, then uh, Theresa May's deal. I mean, that's, I'm, say- I'm saying it. I'm putting it out there. I mean, I want to stay as closely aligned to the EU as possible. That's what I, that's what I would want. So any deal yeah. that was as close to the EU as possible, with the potential for in the fu- for future renegotiation in five, ten years' time. So let's not burn our bridges so mm. that that can't happen. I'm hopeful that even if Theresa May's de- Theresa May's deal went through, that's what five years of this. That at no. some point maybe somebody no. sensible will come along and we can we can we can just. See, I, I know, d- I, I know, I, I know. I'm, I'm a romaniac. Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm a traitor. I d- no, not at all. But, but I, d- I just don't think it's sustainable. I think the the consensus would break down in that five years. I think we'd have more of the circular arguments that we've had mm. in the last two two and a bit years, and we'd end up in a in a situation where actually no deal becomes more likely uh, through May's deal. That's that's always well, been my thing. Actually. Okay, here's what happens if this deal gets goes through. It means we leave, we stay for the first two years, we are bound by the rules of the EU but have no say, after which, and during that time, we're negotiating. For the next two years, we're negotiating. And have you seen how well the negotiations have gone for the past two years? We've got two more years of that. Hasn't exactly brought the country together, so we'll, still be, we'll still be at each other's throat for the next two years. And then after that, if we fail to get a deal, um, it means we end up with the backstop situation whereby the whole of the UK stays in the, in the trade policy of the EU. And Northern, and, and Northern <laughs> Northern Ireland, and this is the thing, Northern Ireland, is this, this, and this is supposed to protect the, the Good Friday Agreement, stays within the regulations of the EU, but that means that the Republic of Ireland has more of a say over the laws of Northern Ireland, because it's represented in Brussels, mm. than Northern Ireland. And that in of itself disrupts the essence of the Good Friday Agreement, which is supposed to be about equal partners. It, it's amazing that opponents of the people's vote go, well, I think it would just divide Britain. Uh, we've got the division. And it was just like, have you looked around? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think people are coming together. Can I, can I say something very quick? on the division here. I think, unfortunately, we're stuck with a division. There are now two entrenched camps, Leavers and Remainers, and we have to ask ourselves, do we add on top of that economic ruin? Mm. Because the only way to even begin to try and unite the country is to avoid that economic ruin. Mm. Emma Quinn asks, uh, Ron for Roz, if the people's vote happens, how can the government ensure that there isn't corruption on the Leave side this time? as featured in HBO's forthcoming drama, (laughs) (laughs) considering they have paid no heed to the illegalities from the last one. Well, we can't, and our electoral law is way behind and needs updating. Uh, It's going to be very difficult to have much control over what happens on social media, but my instinct would be to ban all political advertising, certainly in in the final week, final two weeks of the campaign, in an effort to stop... Uh, this happening and and for both sides you know for for leave and and remain I think that would be the only way of getting some kind of control over the poison that spreads on uh, Facebook Um, and a quick one for Femi from Chris Hudson Uh, can you ask Femi where he gets his enormous tolerance and magnanimity from (laughs) (laughs) I bet he suffered through a lorry load of vitriolic bile on his journeys around the country and presumably uh, Twitter Um, why are you not a bitter angry twisted version of yourself (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
basically it's just logic. I mean, if I get angry with somebody, I'm not going to convince them. So I simply don't treat being angry as an option because it's just not going to achieve anything. Mm. That's. I mean, I, some, I'm just angry and it achieves absolutely nothing. <laughs> so I, I, admire, <laughs> I admire the fact that you let logic take command there. Um, so one for, one for Seth, Richard Leeming, what do you think of the idea of uh, a people's assembly as as a sort of good solution to this kind of democratic crisis um, we're in? Yeah, I think it's intriguing. Uh, I, I'm wary of things that add an extra layer of delay, complexity. Um, but, I mean, if it were done in the context of pressing the pause button uh, and having a, a, a genuine national conversation, um, then it could, be, it could be a good idea. My worry, of course, is that we end up mirroring the, the problems we have in the Commons uh, in another forum. But I think it's certainly something that, 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 that should be put in the fray, definitely. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, that sounds like a politician's answer, doesn't it? I mean, I genuinely haven't made up my mind on whether or not it's a good thing, but I think it's a good suggestion, if you like. When you've had a citizens' um, assembly, as you call it, which is a bit like that in the past, um, uh, the UCL Constitution Unit, I think, ran one, and it turned out that they opted for a soft Brexit. Right. There you go. <laughs> um, and the last one for everybody, uh, from Florian Dietrich. It's a little barbed, Florian. Looking back on the last two years, as a nation, do you think you deserve to stay in the Ooh. EU? <laughs> Very good. Very good question. Ingrid, you are... You are uh, you are both English and, and a German, bit German and a bit yeah. German. Yeah. Do we deserve it? <laughs> um, we deserve to pay some penance, which we no doubt will. <laughs> um, frankly, um, yeah, we deserve it because we've been a part of it for you know, been helped shape it for over forty years. So of course, we deserve to be a part of it. The, I would I hope that the EU would regard this as a minor blip. We plead temporary insanity, it could and we go back. It could be just like when someone just like had like a really bad midlife crisis. Yeah. Well, we all have it. We all have them. Friends take them back. You know, yeah. the employer it's, goes, "Look, it was a bad episode." It's Dallas. Isn't yeah. it? We're going to wake up from the dream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right now, Hungary does not really deserve to be yeah. in the European Union. Uh, yeah. But right. yeah. we're living with that because it's better than pissing in, inside the tent, pissing in the... Oh, well, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the metaphor. But <laughs> pissing, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of pissing about. Yeah, there's a lot of pissing about. It's better they're in than they're out right now. There's some hope of redemption. Femi, have we, have we, have we, we've earned the right to stay? I think that a, this was not the will of the people. Um, this was 37% of the electorate that voted, that voted for Brexit. So the idea that that rejection represents all of the people in the UK simply isn't true. I think, I think, and especially given that people have made such an effort to find out more about the EU in the two years since we voted, I think that now we are a population that definitely deserves to be in, in the Union. Yeah. And uh, as our Romaniacs mug, which you can buy for Christmas, says, don't blame me, I voted Remain. <laughs> <laughs> May I just very quickly, I, just, you know, all, Hungary is not Orban, and we're not May and mm. Reese Mogg, so you know, 65 million of us, I think we deserve to stay in, we're better than this. You know, there's a country out there that is the country that we all love, and it's still there. And I think we need to get that mm. country back again. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you so upbeat, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's uh, there. <laughs> Never went away. Uh, finally, as we cram 2018 into the ground and batter the earth down over its head with a shovel, it's time for our end-of-year highlights and lowlights. We are seven family to think of their best and worst Brexit moments of the year and a ray of hope for 2019. We're going to start... Uh, 
with the the best moments. Seb Dan, M E D. What's your best Brexit moment? Well, well, it's 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 actually it's the same as the worst moment. I, am I screwing up the order? No, of this? no, okay. please go for it. So it, it's it's like with so much with Brexit, there's kind of two sides of the same coin, and it's the moment that the deal. Uh, became a real thing, 585 pages of it, was the best and the worst moment. It was the worst moment because it was a day that should never have come. It's a day that this country should never have seen. Uh, and it was a very sad day uh, to see our Prime Minister uh, p- putting uh, her country's uh, government's n- name to it. But it was also the best day because f- finally all this talk about unicorns and what, what is out there and what we could possibly get and how wonderful this would be, it was distilled into a 585-page document. That's Brexit. Everyone can download it, they can and mm. adjudicate over it. That is Brexit. It's there. You can see it. And it's, it's not good. <laughs> uh, Femi, what was your uh, favourite moment? Uh, well, I had, a, I had two. One, one would be um, the moment where uh, it was John Redwood, uh, an, M- an MP who's campaigned for Brexit for the past 30 years since Thatcher, uh, I pointed out to him that given that the Conservative Party's own experts say that every possible Brexit scenario uh, leaves the country worse off, and this was on radio, um, that means that by pursuing Brexit, the Conservative Party was actively trying to hurt the country. Uh, he, and he was asked to respond to that, and his response was, I'm not going to respond to that. I wasn't told we were having a debate. Somebody who's campaigned for Brexit for 30 years refused to answer such a, a simple question. That was one. And my second, my second best moment would be literally hours after the one Seb just mentioned in the hours after the deal was finally published for everybody the Brexit politicians Jacob Rees-Mogg Nigel Farage and and Boris Johnson what they said was priceless you had Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that the deal makes us a slave state and saying it's worse than remaining you had Nigel Farage saying it's the worst deal in history you had Boris Johnson also saying that it's worse than remaining which means that when we get to a people's vote and we get to choose between deal and and remaining they've already said they will become the greatest spokespeople for remaining in the EU because they've already pointed out that deal's rubbish compared to being an EU member (laughs) Um, and what was your what was your lowest moment, uh, Brexit-wise? I think my lowest moment was probably just before just before the summer when they were voting on how much power Parliament should have on the process at the end, the meaningful vote, and you had some MPs who promised to um, back the people, back the meaningful vote to make sure that Parliament could take full control right now, um, chickening out because they didn't want to ha- they didn't want to be seen to undermine the negotiations in any way, which showed that. They were willing to put their own political parties and aspirations ahead of the benefit of the country. And I thought that was a pretty dark day. Well, I, th- I mean, I remember that as well. And Dominic Grieve has been on quite a, quite a journey this year. Hmm. And sort of kind of, he's, he's a hero. Oh, no, he's back down. Oh, he's a hero <laughs> again. I think Bendit Combat should play him in. <laughs> <laughs> HBO's The Grieving. <laughs> uh, finally, send everyone off for Christmas on a happier note. Shh, Ingrid. What are <laughs> semi-realistic hopes for next year? Uh, Seb, you first. Yeah, I, I, I honestly feel this could be the time at which, you know, the pro-European voice becomes a legitimate and realistic uh, uh, campaigning force for change in the sense that, you know, staying in the European Union for the first time in two and a half years not just becomes realistic, but th- the most probable outcome. Uh, and that's what I that's what I'm hoping for in 2019, and I think it's achievable. I honestly do. I think we can do this. Uh, Femi, 
my biggest hope for 2019 isn't so much that um, we vote to stop Brexit. It's the moments in the couple of weeks after that that we have we don't have cocky remainers going on TV saying we won, we, you lost, get over it. We, we, we were oh, right God, all along. Can you imagine? Yeah, I that know would that would tear the country apart, and we need to move past this. The only thing that that people need to be recognizing at that moment in those two weeks is. We understand that Brexit voters were not happy with the status quo. They needed change desperately because the political system, specifically in those areas, was not working for them. And it needs investment in those areas, needs reform of the, of the democratic system in the country. Get rid of first past the post. Make sure that people's votes actually matter so that people feel represented and actually that Westminster takes notice of areas like the North East, like Wales. That's what needs to happen. Because if people just go back mm. to the same old, we won, we're Remainers, we're, we're more mm. intelligent, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we're, we're screwed. It'd we be a real moral and political challenge, won't yeah. it? Yeah. What, what happens next? There we have it. You can hear Ros and Ingrid's best and worst moments of the year and mine on our intra-Christmas Winterville edition. So keep disappearing into your in-laws' bathroom and checking the podcast app for <laughs> Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> That's like the end Mrs. of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the only one who does? <laughs> wait till the end. Check, check it afterwards. <laughs> That's the end of the show and the end of the year. The Brexit time capsule will be back next year, as will we. But here's our closing language clip. It's a very Christmassy one in Italian from listener Marco Marambe. Brexit è come avere la diarrea. Quando pensi che finalmente sia passato il dolore, scopri che in realtà la cacca non è finita. That means Brexit is like diarrhea. When you finally think the pain is over, you discover that in reality, the poo is not over. <laughs> Does sound better in Italian. God, <laughs> God bless us, everyone. Oh, Send us your European sound clips at info at Romaniacs.com. Keep them shortish, uh, but clearly mention poo if you like, <laughs> and we'll use the best ones. Uh. That's the end of the show. Uh, thanks to Seb Dance. Thanks to Femi Olawale. Uh, pleasure to have you both back. Femi, what, what, are your, what are your OFOC plans in the new year? So we're hoping that we get the people's vote and that young people will be the ones leading the debate so it's not the same old stale voices that you heard in 2016, people that nobody trusts anymore, and that's kind of the point. So we're hoping that um, Our Future, Our Choice will be leading the way alongside For Our Future's Sake, the other youth group um, pushing for people's vote. And that and we've, today we launched a crowdfunder, I'm hoping to, so we can actually have the means to make sure that we can displace the old fogies that usually dominate the airwaves and actually get young people's voices out there. Fantastic. Ros and Ingrid, thanks for all your great stuff on the show all year. Thanks to absent friends Naomi, Ian, Nina and Alex, and to producers Sophie, Alex and Elsie, and our mastermind Andrew. And of course, thank you for listening and making what could have been an awful year a bit less awful. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a name check for some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello and happy Christmas from me to Ali Matar, BR, possibly British Rail, back in public ownership, Sass Harrison, Guy Skelton, David Brown, Nadia Joy Lloyd Ashton and Chowney Bass. Und ein frohes Weihnachtsfest und alles Gute zum neuen Jahr. Uh, from me to Julie Carey, Ross Petros Tarikis, Desiree Stewart, Anna Hyde. Hello, Anna. We met at the People's Vote Rally. Lovely woman. Uh, Roger Barnes and Nicholas Moore. Finally, thanks from me to Sarah Basso DeMarc, Luke Alexander, Andrew Stott, Glyn Skerritt, Mrs. Good, Chris, and Leslie Mather. Thanks for listening. Have a happy Christmas, and let's turn this mess around in the new year. Yay! Yay.